Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast, once again with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a genuine delight for you all. I have a roundtable with three of the finest minds available on LinkedIn, and we're going to be talking about transparency, honesty, and listening and empathy, all the things that most of you are probably not doing well. So today, I have as my guests, Mark Goulston, Michael Brody-Waite, and Todd Capone. So, Let's start with 60 seconds on each of you. Mark, would you mind kicking off, please? Well, I've known Marcus for too long. (laughs) (laughs) This is the master of empathy, by the way. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, No, I've known Marcus for a while, and he's been a fan of one of my books called Just Listen. And I've been humbled by the success of it. It's in 26 languages. I've spoken around the world. and And at the core of Just Listen is causing people to feel felt. And when you get a sense of that and doing it, you'll see it's much different than causing people to feel understood. When people feel understood, you're the understander and the power is still in you. But when they feel felt, the power comes in the space known as interbeing. And the interbeing is the space between you that goes up with empathy and goes down with sarcasm and cynicism. So I don't know how Marcus is doing with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking that when you were saying that, Mark. <laughs> Physician, heal thyself. So on that happy note, Michael, would you mind giving us 60 seconds? And it, actually, incidentally, I'm a fan of two of your books because Talking to Crazy is awesome as well. If you haven't read or listened to either or both of them, you are definitely missing out. So, Michael, quick introduction from you as well, please. Yeah, I think the best way anyone can understand who I am is they, I'm a big fanboy of Mark. So I don't even have a personal identity. I Just Listen was amazing when I read it. So, so the most important thing anyone can know about me is I'm a recovering drug addict. And I gave a TED Talk two years ago called To Be a Great Leader, Do What Drug Addicts Do. It now has 2 million views around the world. And it keeps 4,000 views a day going. And basically, I then wrote a book called Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts. And my entire theory and and, and hypothesis and program is we've all gotten leadership books. That's not new. And we've all heard the drug addict that's overcome addiction and been successful. But what we've never heard is how you can take the system that addicts use to recover and apply that as a framework to empower anyone to be a truly great leader. And that's really my message and my focus. And it's built on my experience being homeless with no college degree to being a three-time CEO and E500 founder and everything in between. Excellent. Thank you. And if you haven't heard my interviews with Mark or Michael, then definitely look them up. Mark was my second ever podcast, so it was slightly iffy in terms of production values, but the content was brilliant. And uh, Michael, I released in December, and um, it's had the hottest reaction of all the podcasts I've ever done. So follow that, Todd. (laughs) No pressure. Uh, All right, tears in my eyes. So yeah, I'm Todd Capone. I am a multi-time sales leader who is also a behavioral science nerd. I don't know how that combination happened, but in my last role, I noticed something about the way that consumers interact with reviews on websites when they're buying something that matters and that they haven't bought before. And it's that almost all of us go to the negative reviews first, 82% of us. And when a review score has between a 4.2 and a 4.5 as our average score, it sells better than any other score, including a perfect five. That's when a website's acting as the salesperson. So I decided to double click on the behavioral science as to why and found that those elements are exactly what the buying brain wants and needs. And it absolutely applies to the B2B human to human selling world. Wrote a book called The Transparency Sale that I honestly thought had a 50-50 chance that it would suck. But for some reason, people have loved it. It's won a bunch of awards, made a bunch of bestseller lists. And now I just go talking about the idea that imperfection sells better than perfection. And because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback and anything we do buy and experience, we now have to do it anyway. So now is the time to embrace it. So on that note, can someone please give the Inquisitor podcast a four-star review? Because I've only got five so far. Um, oh, I'll tell you, my, my nephew, <laughs> so like my nephew read the book and then went to Amazon and gave me a four-star review. I'm like, 
dude, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, my nephew's got to at least give me a five star, but yeah. That's not... Excellent. Okay, so let, let's start with the million dollar question. Why don't human beings understand other humans? So Mark, let's start with you. Well, I think what happens is human beings, and especially now at any given moment, are feeling overwhelmed. And what happens is when people are overwhelmed, they discover that talking and getting things off their chest helps relieve that. But what they don't realize, and this is one of the greatest disconnects in communication, when you're talking to someone else, and there's something that I call uh, the, the traffic light rule, Unless you're being invited to give a presentation, and I've already violated it, by the way, what I'm saying, but unless you're invited to give a, a, a presentation, you have 20 seconds before the green light turns to yellow and 20 seconds before the yellow light turns to red, and then you've worn out your welcome. But what happens is as you're talking, initially you're giving information, but it crosses over into, I'm having a high colonic. This is wonderful. And at the point that you're starting to feel relief, at the time you're feeling relief, you disconnect from the other person sort of looking at their watch, fidgeting, looking like this, because in your mind, you're saying, how can something that feels so great to me feel awful to the other person? So there's a huge disconnect sometimes when we're talking and feeling great about it, and we stop noticing that the audience is done. So, Michael, same question. Why don't human beings understand other humans? I think because we don't trust other humans, and the reason is that most humans are liars. We're not actually trustworthy. Most of us are hiding who we truly are, no more so than in leadership positions, whether in the for-profit, nonprofit, or government sectors. Um, I've worked with you know, leaders in the boardroom, to the mailroom, to the classroom, to the living room, and I've assessed over 2,000 of them. And 90% on a weekly basis are spending 10 hours saying yes to things that they could say no to hiding their weaknesses, avoiding difficult conversations, and holding back their unique perspective. And as these other two brilliant gentlemen illustrate in their work, when we hide our true selves, we actually really limit the trust that someone else can give to us. And as a result, we don't listen, and therefore, we don't understand. Outstanding. Todd, same question. Well, I mean, those answers really well around this whole thing. I think uh, I had just done some research on this idea that, you know, Salespeople, when you look at Gallup's annual list of most to least trusted professions, like what's at the bottom? Salespeople, members of Congress and senators, right? Like the perfect trio. At the top is like doctors and veterinarians and nurses. And what I was trying to figure out is if you're a doctor, your role is to do a diagnosis, to build empathy with the individual that you're speaking with to be able to relate to them on a really personal level and then be able to deliver a prognosis that sometimes is good news, sometimes is bad news. But the expectation is that they're going to take that home and they're going to live it and do it. And what's the difference between a good salesperson that is able to experience clinical empathy, that's able to diagnose, prescribe, and hope that that individual goes and takes that home and does something with it. And it's that trust and relatability. I think that as individuals, uh, doctors, they learn the books and they learn all of that that they need to learn. But one of their really important elements of a good doctor that they learn through their whole process is clinical empathy. And I think that that is what sets doctors apart from the rest of the world is most of us don't understand that, don't learn it, and certainly don't have the opportunity to dig into it to a level where it can influence their careers and the way that they interact with people. So there's a, a missing element, and it's this idea of clinical empathy. So, so can Mark, I jump in? Let's jump bring in? Mark in, because this is his area of specialty. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear that. Yeah, so I have a new book that just came out called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And it's uh, how healthcare heroes of COVID-19 can recover from PTSD. And I introduced an approach that I used for 30 years with suicidal patients, and none of my patients killed themselves. So I've been trying to figure that out for 30 years. And what I introduced was the concept of surgical empathy, which is different from clinical empathy. And surgical sure. empathy is you go where the other person is, and before you start treating them with solutions, you sit with them in their stuckness. And when they realize they're not alone and you're not pushing them into a solution that hasn't worked before, 
and they realize you're not going to abandon them, they start to cry. And when they start to cry, they feel relief and they lean into that. And so here's the difference. See if you can uh, tell the nuance. Clinical empathy, someone comes in, uh, they're obviously in a bad place, and you say, uh, are you depressed? How long have you been depressed? How's your sleep? Has it affected your appetite? Do you have negative thoughts? Have you had self-destructive thoughts? That's clinical, and you're checking a box. But what I learned with suicidal patients when I started seeing them, when I was checking boxes, I would listen into their eyes, and their eyes were screaming out, you're checking boxes, and I'm running out of time. And I realized that the clipboard and the checking boxes was to protect me, but stay away from their pain. So I learned to jump into their eyes. So that was clinical empathy. See if this feels different. This is surgical empathy. You're feeling depressed, aren't you? Yeah. And it gets pretty bad for you, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's sometimes when you don't know how you're going to make it through the next hour. Yeah. And there's sometimes when it's the middle of the night and you don't know if you can make it to sunrise and it's pretty scary and then the sun rises. You've been there, haven't you? But can you feel the difference between that and checking boxes? Uh, absolutely. And in the context of selling, this is so important because um, salespeople who go through the motions and they use technique and they have a checklist of questions. So the, the classic area that, I, please, for God's sake, stop it, bant. In sales, we have budget, authority, need, and time. It's the most selfish way of qualifying a prospect. And all it does is it builds a wall because it is exactly that. You're not looking into their eyes. You're not empathizing at all. All you're trying to do is selfishly tick off a few boxes. And the net result is you create a barrier between your buyer and yourself. And this then brings me to the subject of intent. So Todd, let me bring you in on this. When you're speaking to a prospective customer or a client, what's your intent before you set foot into their office or pick up the phone? Well, I tell you, there's a, I, I make an analogy often that um, I actually teach, and it's the analogy with reality makeover TV shows. And so I don't think this exactly answers the question, but it's a mindset that I teach sellers to think about that typically we go into a room and we're going to wee, wee, wee all over them, right? Like, you know, this is our mission, <laughs> this is like our awards, this is our map. Like we've got an office in Singapore. I don't, I know you don't, but we think it's cool. And here's our NASCAR <laughs> slide with all our logos. And, you know, instead, if you think reality makeover TV shows like Queer Eye on Netflix or Restaurant Impossible or The Biggest Loser, what do they do? Exactly like in a sales situation, they're invited into the room, right? It's not like they're Zoom bombing or barging in the conference room saying, you suck, right? They're coming in because they've been invited in and those individuals recognize that they've got something that needs to be addressed. They've got a goal. And what the heroes of the shows always do is they align around, hey, why am I here? What do you see the problems as? And then they go into a teaching mode. Like, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? We see companies like yours that are experiencing this issue. And they're doing this in the reality makeover TV show, saying like, hey, your buffet is dirty and the floor is sticky. And it's not the restaurant down the street that's taking your business. It's your food, you know, in the nicest way possible. And then they back it up with logic by showing them proof and then adding in the emotion around, hey, what happens if we don't fix this? Or what is the potential reward for fixing it? And they move the wee-wee from the beginning to the end. And once we've aligned around what the real problems are and we've taught them, we say, hey, here's the way that we're going to deal with this. Or here's our recommendation for the path forward. And once you flip that script, you tell a story that instead of telling about how great you are, you tell a story around how great your customers can be. And that's look at reality makeover TV shows, right? Just flip the script, start with them instead of starting with you. And it becomes really, really easy. And I, I think that's the intent that we need to have. Make the customer like the hero of your story. So one of the things that I do is I reverse engineer from my customers getting a big promotion. So what I might say to them is, and I don't say this out of the gate, but we're talking. I say, can I ask you a hypothetical question? They say, what? What kind of big win 
would get you a promotion. And they're going to say, what? Yeah, what kind of big win in what you're doing will get you a promotion the next time you're up for one? And they start to talk about that. And what would lead to that, that getting a promotion? What would you need to accomplish? And then they tell you about that. And then what you want to filter in is, and what would be the opposite? What kind of big lose will get you the opposite? And the reason you want to bring that out is one of the reasons people are afraid to say yes is inside they're getting flashbacks of times they've said yes and their boss said, why did you buy this piece of junk? We can't even use it and you paid too much. So inside, they want to make sure they avoid that. And they've already had some of those and they've been, uh, uh, you know, uh, they've been taken on the carpet. But I think if you can get people, what, what I coach people to do is if in your conversation, you can cause the customer to break eye contact, look up because they want to think about the question. When they start looking at you, it's not transactional anymore. And then you build on that and then you reverse engineer from what kind of success they need, what kind of win to get them the promotion. And hopefully, if you've targeted, marketed that your product or service will help them with that, the need for that will reveal itself. So there are a couple of things that I'd like to build on here. The first thing is you have to make your customers the hero. Your job is to be Obi-Wan Kenobi to their Luke Skywalker. The minute you make yourself the hero, that puts you in their crosshairs and you create a barrier. The next thing that I've taken from this, which confirms my belief system, is that customers buy or the customers rent outcomes and they'll only rent that outcome for as long as it continues to deliver what they need and what they want. And it's never about you. Michael, I'd like to bring you in at this point. You made the very bold statement that you know people lie all the time. And I, again, agree with you wholeheartedly because I think uh, the majority of people are brittle. They're afraid to show their true selves. So my question to you is this. Why is it that people are afraid to uh, be vulnerable enough to show who they really are? At the end of the day, they're, they're scared of the outcome of what happens if they do. And so, you know, if you think about practical situations, when um, in my TED talk, I talk about a time where, you know, I had one job interview and if I didn't get the job, I'd be kicked out on the street and I'd probably relapse. And I had to go into this job interview and be honest about getting out of rehab and being a drug addict who's new in recovery. And so the outcome that I'm scared of is that if I tell him the truth, I tell him who I am, he's going to judge me. He's not going to trust me. I'm not going to get the job. And then I'm not going to be able to stay in the house. And if I don't stay in the house, I'm going to be on the street. And if I'm on the street, I'm going to relapse. And if I relapse, I'm going to freaking die. And I was taught that all fear comes down to the fear of death at the end of the day. And so for me, it's if I actually show you who I truly am, and I acknowledge my weaknesses, something bad is going to happen. And one thing I just want to, I, I agree with what Todd and Mark said, but I also want to challenge what they said, because, you, you know, a bunch of salespeople are going to listen to this and you're going to get a whole army of salespeople that essentially just have a new checklist. You just gave them a new checklist. And, and, and at some point they will tune out and they will feel that that's disingenuous at some level, because at the end of the day, we do not trust humans that don't act like humans. And if you can't share your humanity with me, I'm not going to trust you. And that isn't always necessarily formulaic. And one of the great things I love is leaders typically will say, here's a better way. Let's all do it this way. And they'll say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you hear my story, all those sorts of things. And I do those things. So I agree with them. But what makes a sponsor in a 12-step program, the best leader in the world is they don't tell you what to do and they don't try to manipulate you. Well, okay, wait a second. Drug addicts are highly manipulative. So I'm, I'm sure that there are some sponsors that manipulate people, but... What they do is they share their experience. A lot of what Mark talks about is empathy, right? And a lot of what Todd's talking about is empathy. They share their experience in a similar situation and they talk about how they led themselves through that situation. And they don't just give you the positive version of the story. They give you the actual struggle. And so then when they talk about the outcome they were scared of, you can go, wow, I'm not the only one that's scared of this. And when they talk about how they went through it, even if it didn't end up as a positive story, you get to see how they, what specific tactics they executed. And you're able to go, wow, I see myself in that story. And so I would just argue on some level with the focus on empathy, no matter what the tactics are, if they start to become a tactic, no matter how much they connect to our brain, 
I think we will start to tune them out if because it, it, it eclipses our humanity in the process. And that's the real power that I think both of you really bring out in your work. Uh, absolutely. Todd, go ahead. Yeah, I, and it, it's why this idea of transparency is so important. I mean, there, I always joke, like, there's this company you may have heard of. I think it's called Amazon, I think, if I'm pronouncing that. They're doing pretty well. And they were the ones in 1995 that decided to list negative reviews right next to their own products on their own website. And what happened? They sold more. And that is that element of leading with your flaws, leading with the, the, the things that the customer might not like, exposing that early in the process. So, I mean, part of empathy is understanding our brain's need and desire to predict. We're trying to predict the future. And when we can't, we freeze. We're seeing that in the COVID times, right? Where in March, all of a sudden, everybody froze and all of our brains snapped together to prioritize the exact same things, right? Reduce discretionary spending, look at our essentials, extend our runway by going and buying every freaking roll of toilet paper I could find and reducing costs and okay. looking at worst case scenario as risk and saying, how do I prevent that from happening to me? Which included, you know, us going out to the mailbox with a pair of salad tongs, taking the salad out or taking the, the mail out and then dropping it by our front door for three days to make sure that nothing has any virus on it, right? That's what we all did. Now, the reason that we get into this struggle is when we can't predict. And our brains are wired to resist this idea that something could be perfect unless we disarm that early in the conversation, which is why negative reviews work on a website and why salespeople that lead with the downside, something a competitor does better, it not only creates that better ability to predict, but it humanizes, it creates that authenticity, and then it clears the limbic filter of resistance to influence. The earlier you can do that, to Michael's point, You've got to be authentic. You've got to be a human being and you've got to help the brain predict. And if all you're doing is spouting 5.0 star content, the brain can't predict and as a result puts up walls. Michael, so, you hey, looked like uh, you had something. Yeah, just like one thing on that is like, just to kind of illustrate my point because I love authenticity. You know, when I discovered Brene Brown's work, I, it was revolutionary for me. And, if, and I always say this, if I ever meet her, I will pee on myself. But <laughs> I have not met her, so that has not happened. And so the thing is, is that what I am seeing right now, because I, I teach authentic leadership and authentic cultures for companies, I'm seeing that people are already starting to resist the belief that I can trust you when you're authentic, because there's so much check the box and curated and selective authenticity out there. Okay, I understand I need to be authentic. So I'm going to talk about that one time I kept it real in front of grandma, but I'm not going to tell you about my deepest, darkest secret. I'm not even telling my wife, Right. And so I think that, you know, one of the things I teach is this concept of rigorous authenticity. And as, an, as a recovering addict, I don't really have a choice. I got to work my program every day or I'll relapse. The only way I got to 18 years is by doing that. And I think that when you practice rigorous authenticity, it, it, it immunizes you from being able to be selective and, and therefore kind of wear, wear a facade of being an authentic person because you are a human with flaws, problems, fears, like whatever. And if you're rigorously authentic, you will automatically connect with everybody in your sphere. And it'll be scary as all get out. Like I'm known as being this authentic guy. I was, I was doing an interview the other day and they're like, man, your vulnerability really makes you attractive to me. And I'm like, the effed up thing is, is that I know that. And I'm still scared as all get out every time I do it. Every time I talk about something, I'm scared to reveal to another human. I am so resistant to doing that because I think I'm going to get cast out of the tribe. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get whatever. But the thing is, is that just like I said, with authenticity, it's buzzy now. People are doing selective. They're doing check the box. And, and we're going to start to look for, hey, who's actually really real out there? And that's like, hopefully where we all come in. One point on that is I wanted to ask your question, ask your question, Michael, on this one, because I was asked, because when I talk transparency, I'm talking in terms of revealing flaws in our products or services, what a competitor yeah. does. And there's a difference between transparency and authenticity. Now, I got asked this question of like, Todd, what is the difference between transparency and authenticity? I gave my answer. And then the, the guy that was doing the interview said this, and I would love your take on it. He was like, when I think about authenticity, it's about being true to yourself, like being who you are. But he was like, what if you're an asshole? Yeah. And, actually, I, and I was thinking like, ah, in the sales world, authenticity, like that could get you in trouble. What, what's your take on that? 
So that's something I actually get asked a lot and that I speak on. So uh, one of the ways I illustrate this point is honesty. And, and, you know, this is just my perspective. It's relatively binary. It's like true or false. There's someone that holds the truth and it's transactional. Were you honest in this moment? Other people can gauge whether you are honest, given enough information. Authenticity is being true to yourself in word and action. You are a dynamic human being. You're not fully self-aware. Therefore, you never fully know yourself. Therefore, only you are capable of measuring whether you're being authentic. And so I, I went and did a speaking engagement for this like Fortune 50 company. And they're like, hey, we love what you're talking about, but I got some a-holes on my team. And I don't want you like empowering them. And so what I said was, I said, authenticity is amoral. Okay. If you watch The Sopranos, Tony Soprano was being very authentic when he whacked people. He was being true to himself. He wanted to kill people. He thought that's what mattered or whatever. And I think, and as a result, he had tremendous allegiance from other people that shared that value system. If he was to pretend that he was not a killer, they actually would trust him less. So I, I also use that movie, The Mask, ironically, where like Jim Carrey becomes this like fun guy, whatever, but then the villain becomes this monster. I think that when you're truly authentic, whatever is true to you comes out. And I don't think that it's necessarily inherently good. But the positive thing is if you practice rigorous authenticity, the world will give you a feedback loop that being that a-hole doesn't work, whether it's a consequence for murdering someone or telling your wife that she looks fat in that dress, whatever it is, you're going to get a consequence from the world. And you're going to say, is there something I need to change about me? And then, and then you get to actually work on you rather than what do I have to hide about myself? Because when we hide ourselves to other people, we create this thing called denial, which creates self-deception and we become incapable of being able to grow in the areas that we need to. Excellent. So Mark, your thoughts? I'm going to sh share a story. You know, people remember stories. And uh, I remember there was someone I was working with who was kind of an asshole. And I will tell you, uh, and I'm in a different stage in my life, I only work with people and I only let people in my life that I can, I can either root for or come to root for. So if I'm dealing with an asshole, I'll work with them if they don't know any better. And I'm remembering a story when I was with someone who was like that. I just don't want to help people who are mean to other people and take delight in it. If they're mean to other people because they don't know any better and it's out of fear, then it's workable. And I remember this fellow, and here was what my way of breaking through. We were uh, having lunch at the Beverly Hills Hotel hotel. And I said, I know a secret about you that nobody in the world knows, including you. Are you interested? And he sort of looked at me like this. And I said, the secret I know about you that nobody knows, including you, is I know that you're not an asshole. And the secret is safe with me. And he started laughing. <laughs> so it's, I, I think some of the things, what, there's an interesting segment that Oprah Winfrey did on 60 Minutes. And at the end of it, she said it was the most life-changing story of all the stories she's ever done in her career, which is a lot for Oprah to say. And it was a story about a treatment center for abused kids who acted out. And she said, what was life-changing is their assumption was always that something happened that drives people to their behavior. So their attitude is always, if a kid's acting out, what happened to you that caused you to do this? And so there's the belief that, that evil people, really truly evil people are rare and that the rest of us are just flawed. So if someone's acting up, if you can just pause and instead of getting tweaked and triggered, to be able to say, what happened to you that this is how, uh, you know, that this is what you're saying and how you're saying it. And, and, and I find that that helps uh, unearth things. Something I also wanted to share about this authenticity, uh, which I wanted to ask you, I know people, and I'm guilty of this. I know there are certain stories I can tell. And when I tell them, I relive them and I get emotional. And there's a part of me says that's manipulative. And so I have an internal conflict because there's some stories where people say, oh my God, that's so vulnerable. And the first time I said it, it was truly authentic. But now I know it's going to be, it, it's going to be the killer because they're going to go, my God. So I, I'd like your thoughts because I'm guessing I'm not alone where people pull out that thing, you know, because you have to have some preparation in when you're, when you're talking and you know certain stories will, will manipulate the audience into believing you're authentic and it's unclear whether you're truly authentic. Well, let, let me bounce the question back to all of you. Is manipulation a bad thing? 
if the intent is to serve? That's actually, I was going to answer that question is when, so when I was uh, early in recovery and I was really scared, I was working at this big company, publicly traded company, and I was really scared of revealing that I was an addict in recovery. And people would always ask me like, Hey man, you got long hair, hoop bearings and flip-flops and you're in Nashville, Tennessee. What the heck are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm from California. Like, why'd you move here? Nost answer was rehab, but I don't want to say that. Right. And so one of the things I had to learn was how I overcome the discomfort of sharing my imperfect self in an environment where I think it'll hurt me. And so I started to do that. And to my surprise, it endeared people to me. And so like a good addict that when I do something, I get a positive result. I was like, I'm going to do that all the time. And so I would meet someone and they would say, so how are you doing? I'd be like, I came here because of rehab. <laughs> like I would want to tell them immediately because I wanted to be able to have the same effect. And my sponsor kind of took me aside. He said, look, I said, so I'm confused. He said, that's not good. And I'm like, so I'm confused. I'm supposed to be honest, but now I'm being super honest. What do I do? He said, it's not about what you do. And this is what you said, Marcus. It's about what your motive is. And if my motive is to manipulate that person, then, then I'm being inauthentic. I'm not letting my true self as not being known as the addict come through. And so what I learned was, and specific to this particular thing, going through my career, was that if someone asked a question or made a comment that where it was relevant and it felt natural to talk about the fact that I was a recovering addict, I wouldn't block myself from doing it. But I also wouldn't try to put on the mask of being Michael Brody weight, the version that I think you'll like at any given opportunity, because that's like true and utter manipulation. And so I know when I talk about being a recovering addict, I know people feel more connected to me, but I talk about it now as it relates to the context of the situation knowing it has an impact, but not with the motive to manipulate. Todd. Yeah. And to take that over into the business world, right? To think about it from a transparency and authenticity perspective, we see many of the most successful companies in the world that have done, Michael, what you just say in the exact right way. So like Ikea doesn't advertise on commercials, hey, you're gonna your average F-bomb count when you put together a bedroom set, set is gonna be eight and a half. <laughs> you know, when you go to Costco and you're looking to buy ranch dressing, they don't advertise that, hey, you gotta buy a gallon. Like you better love freaking ranch dressing because you can't buy just a little bit. You gotta buy 10 toothbrushes, not just one, right? What they do in those organizations is they don't hide their flaws. They don't hide what we're giving up to be great at our core. Ikea gives up the shopping experience the, hey, you're going to go down into the warehouse, grab a 10-ton box, put it onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, which seems like a massive oversight, jam it into the car, Tetris style, drive home with F, like with injuries as souvenirs, put the thing together, F-bomb your way through it. They, that's what they're giving up to be great at their core, which is modern Scandinavian design furniture you didn't pay much for. Costco, you're going to buy in bulk. It's going to be a warehouse. There's going to be a lady that checks your receipt on the way out to see if you're stealing stuff. But we do that so that we can keep costs low, right? And that's something that every organization's got a chance to embrace, which is what are we giving up? Because we're all giving something up to be great at our core and then injecting that into the, like, don't hide it, inject it at the right times. Because Marcus, to your point, we're serving the customer and we are no means perfect Ikea, number one furniture retailer in the world for 13 straight years. Costco, the number four retailer in the U.S. once again. Southwest Airlines. Like, you know, I could throw 10 other brands at you that are doing really, really well by being imperfect and not hiding any of that. So I want to give the three of you a challenge, and, this, and we'll call this opportunity for authenticity. I want you to each pause and answer the question, what could you be even better at? Could be personal, could be professional. Hit me with your best answers. I could be a better father and a husband. Just and just elaborate a sentence or two. What do you mean? I could be less self-centered, less obsessed. I could pay more attention, but I just love what I do. And so I'm just constantly obsessed and feeling my selfish drive to do the stuff I love. It doesn't mean that I'm not present when I'm with them. But I do spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about work, working, thinking about working. And that the negative price for my positive payoff is that my wife and kids don't always get the best of me. Yeah. 
Plus, they see you'll give your best to the outside world, and they can sometimes think that they're chopped liver. So what about you, Todd, Michael? What can you be even better? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, something people don't know about, at home, I'm inappropriately funny. Um, And it's something that I I need to work, like in the times that require serious, I'm making jokes and it drives my wife nuts. It even drives my kids nuts. I've got a a stepdaughter who's a teenager and like at the times where she really needs me, I'm cracking jokes. It's something that, it's a defense mechanism. I know like you guys will probably diagnose the shit out of me around that, but it's something that I know in my personal life I need to get better at. But from a, a lack of empathy perspective, that was a good damn joke. Like, what are we getting upset about? (laughs) (laughs) Michael? Uh, This is going to be hard to admit considering everything that I do, but I really, the state of my spiritual condition and my recovery program is what impacts my ability to be a good father, husband, friend, all those things. And I think ever since COVID hit, it's been a lot harder to feel connected to my sponsor and to my sponsees and to my friends in recovery. And my sponsor was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so I know I need to get a new one. And because of the work I do every day, a lot of addicts have this problem where they'll get really passionate about helping other addicts. So they'll move into the addiction field. And and the problem is is that they think because they're around recovery, they're getting the recovery they need for their personal program. And so they relapse. I don't think I'm at risk of relapse, but I definitely think that I'm not working the best program that I could work right now. And because my work is talking about this stuff, I get the illusion of feeling like I'm working my program. And I think I still go to my home group, but I, and I talk to people, but I really think I need a step of my own personal program because I see my answer would have been what Marcus said. If I hadn't had time to think about it, like I'm not as present with my kids. And, and I know that that's because my self-will and ego is driving the bus more than it needs to. And I know that when I work my 12-step program more rigorously, I know that that gets deflated and I'm able to be more present. So I want to share an observation. And if viewers, you're watching this, we'd welcome your feedback. I think the viewers who are all about sales versus service probably tuned out what the three of you just said, whereas those who really want to be about service fell in love with the three of you with what you just said. Because with what you just said, you were compelling versus convincing. And the way you said it, your tempos and the momentum in your voice became more real and that enabled other people to lower their guards. Everybody had guards up because everyone feels like someone's hitting on them. But when the three of you just shared that, and thank you, Marcus, for leading it off because I I think you set the bar for the other two. I'll, I'll just chime in. What I can get better at is I've been this empath all my life. I mean, I've seen people pro pro bono. I saw a suicidal patient for 20 years pro bono because, and I think the best part of me is when I'm saving lives and I'm getting into hell with people, into their hell, and none of them killed themselves in 30 years. But I got to tell you, since I've been doing, you know, some of this entrepreneurial stuff, the momentum is, I'm a momentum junkie. It's so seductive when I feel momentum. It's empowering, but it's not my best self. It might be my most successful self. And I need to always have times when I just let go of that because it is pure, unadulterated, exciting, fun, adrenaline-driven ego. And after I pull it off, I often feel a sense of shame. Interesting. I know, in all honesty, I, I don't ever feel shame at the excitement and the outcomes, but I do definitely feel a sense of shame that I feel I'm letting the people that I claim to love down. And that's a constant frustration because they deserve, they definitely deserve better. But often, I think one of the challenges is how do you break through when you've done that pretty much all their lives? Because I've been a sad, egotistical, obsessive pretty much my entire life. Well, you know, shame, um, shame, I don't think- shame is when you do something or fail to do something that is out of alignment with who you believe and want yourself to be. And people don't do what's important to them. They do what they care enough about. It's important to me to eat well. I don't care enough about it to eat as well as I should. And so the point is, and you just have to look in the mirror and say to yourself, Marcus, what do you really care about? and try to live with that. 
And by the way, if it turns out, you know, I care more about my career than my family in terms of my presence. And if that's out of alignment with the part of you that doesn't want to shortchange them, then you actually, in your mind, have to schedule times, you know, when, when you're going to be present, when your mind isn't on something else. When I'm with my family, they're allowed to look at their phones when we're together. I'm not. You know, uh, they look at me with the stink eye, like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> and so there's a part of me that likes the idea that, uh, you know, I say, you know, I, I'm an outlier. I'm not normal, but I have a kind of normal family, and I like that. But the price I pay is that at certain times when I'm with them is, and it's intentional because I got lots of great stuff I'd like to be thinking of, but it's intentional to be present with them. And when they look me in the eye, that they see that I'm present because that's in alignment with the person I uh, deeply want to be, but it's a challenge. Very interesting. This then leads to another area that I'd like to explore, which is in Buddhism, there's a fundamental tenet that all misery is the product of attachment. And one of the things that I see around me constantly and I struggle with as well is attachment, attachment to the outcome, attachment to being a success, um, you know, the obsession that people have with the number of likes, comments, and shares they get on their posts, their attachment to their phone. And I'm curious, in terms of the work that you guys do, how often do you see that attachment being a driver of those masks, those uh, that opacity, uh, that lack of authenticity, that lack of empathy? So, Todd, let's bring you in. Yeah, I'm going to start with the sales answer, and it's every day. Literally, when we think about, like, the question always comes up, where can transparency go wrong in a sales environment, and why don't more people do it, right? Those are the two questions I get all the time. And it, it has to do everything with attachment, right? Um, why don't people do it? Well, first of all, we've got sales leaders that measure by pipeline mode. Like, hey, Marcus, you better have 3x your quota and pipeline at any time. Otherwise, you're not going to hit your targets. So what do we do? We prospect. We got this little, like, it, it was Tommy Boy where he's got the uh, the little biscuit that he's, like, cuddling and all that in the, uh, the movie Tommy Boy. Um, we get this prospect, and we're not giving this thing up, even if transparency means we lose quicker and we help that customer get to a decision faster. Like, we would rather hold on to it and make sure that we're checking the box for our boss that we've got 3X or quota in pipeline at any one time. It's always about attachment. It's always about this fear that once I get this prospect, I don't want to lose it, even if it's the right decision for the customer. And that's actually the wrong way of thinking. We can create an environment where we lose faster, where we spend more time on the deals that we should win, qualify deals out quickly. And if we get to a point where our pipeline are, is only 2X our quota, that's actually ideal because we're spending more time with the deals that we should win. And we've got to be willing to disattach ourselves or move on from customers that are going to be bad customers for us short and long-term. I just got to jump in here because uh, this is probably why you get more business than me. I, I, I wrote a blog on how uh, it was called Revenge of the Nerds 2.0. And, and I talked about how people like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, Bezos, and Musk are all on the spectrum. And because they didn't know how to get laid when they were young, when they didn't know how to relate to people, they addicted the world to adrenaline because uh, while other people were dating in high school, would go into Radio Shack and creaming in their pants about it. And what happened is they got even with the world and they addicted the world to adrenaline. And now adrenaline leads to something called dopamine. Years and years ago, something called oxytocin also led to dopamine. But you're even seeing this with women. Women don't have high oxytocin. A number of women can't get pregnant because they're getting addicted to adrenaline. They don't want to miss out. And what's happening, by the way, one of the reasons you see a rise of problems in teenagers and obesity is because they're not getting comfort from their parents because their parents have lost the ability or the desire to have an oxytocin-based relationship. And I think one of the reasons the world is kind of going in the direction it is, is we've gotten addicted to adrenaline and excitement, which gives us pleasure. And closeness is too slow, too boring. 
Interesting. Michael? So when Mark asked the question that we all answered, all I was thinking was, I would listen to a podcast that was just leaders doing that. My program is for leaders. And, and it's basically, I equip them with a, a version of the 12-step program so that they can stop being addicted to being, being inauthentic. And they can start recovering from that. And so when we do our program, we, we start every meeting off with this exercise called the boulder exercise. And this derives from when I go into a 12-step meeting, by definition, I'm admitting that I am a mess, right? And so the way you earn street credit in a 12-step meeting is how authentic you get about your challenges. But you asked about attachment, Marcus. All leaders are attached to hiding themselves. They're attached to managing other people's perception. Therefore, they are attached to isolation. And isolation is what drives addictive behavior. And so when I was in that environment, and then I would go out and I would go into my work environment and being a CEO and being a business guy, I would have all these networking meetings, all these business meetings, all these interviews with prospective employees. And all I wanted was to know, are, do you have the capacity to get as real as my fellow recovering addicts do? Because I don't want to mess with you if you can't. And I wish I, they had it stamped on their forehead. And so, because I don't want to talk about the weather, I don't want to talk about whatever's going on unless I know you're going to be real. And so I don't want you in my life. So we create this boulder exercise and it's a way, just like in a poker game, you ante into the environment by telling us the biggest thing that is weighing on you that you're not telling anyone else. And that's how we start. And, and, and when you start that way, there's automatic connection. There's automatic we have all the puzzle pieces on the table so we can all grow as people. And so this works whether you're in a team or whether you're with a peer group, whether you're the CEO of a company. And one of the times I did this was, I remember when we were growing, we were on national television at Inquicker, my startup, never been a leader before, didn't have investors, didn't have anyone helping us. I knew, basically knew I was going to F it up. And I went to someone and I said, I don't know what to do. We have all this exposure. It's going to kill the company. And they said... Well, you're the CEO. I said, no, I'm a little kid in a suit. I have an email signature that says CEO. I have no idea how to do this job. And my brain said, whatever you do, you can't let your team know that. But the recovering addict in me went and told them. And that created a culture where we volunteer our weaknesses. And so as a result, we became less attached to the masks that we wear to hide ourselves. And as a result, we built more trust. We were able to grow ourselves and we connect with our customers in ways that we no one ever could because we had a truly authentic culture. But it all goes back to, I was trained to not be attached to hiding myself. And even when I went into the business environment, I was still tempted and I did. But every time I regretted it and I got to learn to do what drug addicts do. Mark? I don't know where this fits in, but I, I, I'm going to have all of you be... I have a new show starting on LinkedIn Live. It's going to be a weekly show. I'm going to announce it. And I was inspired by Marshall Goldsmith, who's a friend of mine, and he gets thousands of downloads. And I said, uh, and Marshall has something called knowledge philanthropy. And he said, you know, I have enough money and I'm going to give away all my ideas for free with no obligation. You want to monetize them? You want to steal them? You want to pay me? You don't have to pay me. You, you don't have to attribute it to me. I'm just going to give them away. And that so inspired me. So starting in January, and I'm going to do a, another teaser going to have a live weekly show called No Strings Attached. And my guests, and so far I have 150 episodes of my podcast and everyone I've reached out to, they say, oh, I want to be on the show. And the show is you give away an immediately implementable idea with no strings attached. Someone wants to monetize it. Someone wants to build a course on it. Someone wants to do anything. They don't have to attribute it to you, but it's absolutely no strings attached. And I'm going to tell my guests, you know, no convincing, no pushing. It's really the attachment is you have an idea that you know will help people and you just give it away. And then at the end, you'll be able to say, oh, and you'll be able to give away one website and say, oh, if you want to find out more about me, uh, this is probably the best website. And but it's literally no strings attached. And it's an oasis in uh, in LinkedIn. I think that's why they gave me the, the show. I said, you know, you go to LinkedIn and just like you have Zoom fatigue, people have transaction fatigue. Everybody's hitting on everyone else and that's what they do, but people are exhausted. So I hope each of you will, will uh, consent to being a guest and you'll just give away something, no strings attached, without the convincing, you know, charismatic, you got to do this. 
It's going to be this, you know, authentic sharing that you just give away and people, if they want to steal it, if they want to do whatever they can, they're welcome to it. Excellent. Hey, Mark, so first of all, I would love to be on that. I love that idea. But we are all authors and entrepreneurs. And so how are you going to be able to determine whether it's actually an implementable idea that is going to add value or whether it's one of those lead magnet BS things? It's like, I'm going to give you a tool, but really you're going to have to buy this course to understand how to use this tool. So I'll give you the tool for free okay, and then okay. you're going to have to buy this thing. So here's an idea. The three of you can use this. It'll change your life and your relationships because I can see you can all become that salesy person. So it's called the FUD technique. I think Marcus knows about it. So when you're with someone in your family, uh, your kid or your spouse, when someone's expressing frustration or venting or they're being moody, here's what you say to them. If they're venting at you, you let them vent. And instead of looking away or trying to calm them down, get rational, you lean in, you wait three seconds because you want to you want to communicate that it landed and you say, you seem frustrated and I think you're holding back. They're going to go, what? You seem frustrated and I think you're holding back because I think you're also upset and disappointed. So can you fill me in on those and give me examples and maybe we can fix it so you don't have to go there again. It's a game changer. So that's, that's a giveaway. Thank you for the reminder. I do have a giveaway which is immediately implementable. So yeah, delighted to do that. Look, guys, we've we've come to the top of the hour, which has got just flown by. Tell me, let's go for that one giveaway based on this conversation. What's the one piece of immediately implementable advice that you can give people that they can apply today, either in their personal life or in their business or leadership life? So, Michael, you look like you have a thought. Oh, yeah, I always have thoughts. That's kind of my problem. So the principle that I teach, surrender the outcome, is the one that's the hardest for people to get. Everybody intellectually values it, but they don't know how to implement it. And so I always say, like, knowledge isn't power anymore, action is. And so this is something that anyone can do and that we have people do. And I'm always embarrassed at how simple and stupid it is. But you take a, when you are struggling with an outcome that you are having trouble letting go of, you take a piece of paper. And you write can't control in the top left and can't control in the top right. You draw a line down the middle. And then you write three things on the left under the can't control that you can't control. And they have to be specific, who and what. Then on the right-hand side, you write three things you can't control, who and what. They have to be specific. Now, at this point, anyone who's listening saying, yeah, 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 I know I should do that. I'm not saying you know you should do it. I'm saying effing do it. Because when you actually put the pen to paper, once you've written it out, then what I have people do is look at each one in the can't column and write an X through it. They do it for all three. Look at the three things in the can control column, circle them. And what we've just done is we've engaged the brain in distracting it by engaging your body and your mind simultaneously. And you will have surrendered the outcome. And the only thing you're left with are the three things that you can control, which are probably a little fuzzy, but that's where you start to identify, okay, so what can I do? So just as an example, when I didn't know how to be a CEO, I can't control that I'm not a good CEO. I can't control that I, don't, that I don't know what to do in this particular situation that's plaguing me. And I can't control what my team will think of me if I tell them that I don't know how to be a CEO. What I can control is if I get a mentor. What I can control is if I ask my team for help. And I can control whether I'm lying and trying to pretend to be someone that I'm not or I'm truly authentic and vulnerable with them. And when I circle the three can controls, a very specific piece of uncomfortable work became super clear. That was tell the team and go get a mentor. And I was able to let go of the outcome. But that's a, that's a very, you can use any sheet of paper and any pen will do. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be a Mont Blanc. No, no, actually it's a 17 module online course that's $7 million. Um, and it'll also give you passive income when you do it. <laughs> Excellent. Todd. Oh man, you guys are deep. And like mine are so like sales tactical. So I, I'm going to wrap up with the kind of a, a low on that, but I'm, but the thing that I continue to pound at the table on that I just think is so important is for salespeople that are prospecting and they're using email to prospect that first of all, I need you to all understand that everybody's inbox, it's not just the subject line, but there is a preview of 10 words that shows up in everybody's outlook, everybody's Gmail, everybody's phone. 
And so I want you, before you send out any kind of a sales email, to look at your subject line plus the first 10 words and just remove the word I or we from it. Just remove those two words and then look at it again and say, will this stand out in an executive inbox? I was getting 100 to 150 emails per day and in 30 to 35 meetings per week as a CRO. And all I did was looked at all of the ones that said I wanted to and did select all delete every single day because I had to. And the minute that you start making your emails personalized and valuable is the minute that you'll stand out like a beacon in the night in the executive's inbox. So just simply put, get rid of the eyes and the wheeze, look at that preview. And I'm telling you, you will start getting more engagement as you do prospecting. So simple, not deep, very sales tactical, but hopefully that helps. Very helpful. Yesterday, I had someone approach me on LinkedIn to connect and it said, dear, open brackets, first name, close brackets. Aha, uh-huh, only joking. And I had to connect. It was funny. <laughs> yeah, that's well done. <laughs> Mark? I have a different approach. If you do this for a week, it'll lift you out of your gloom in COVID. One of the things I, I don't do every day, but I try to, and I'm going to do it with you, Marcus, is in the morning when you wake up, take out your phone and record a video thanking someone for being in your life. And the script is, and you send it to them via text, and you say, you know, we're all kind of in the doldrums and hunkered down. But what I realize is when I focus on what or who I'm grateful to, it lifts my spirits. And when I thought about that today, I realized I was grateful to you. And what I'm grateful for is such and such. And I hope you're making it through these tough times and taking care of yourself. I've been sending that out to people. People have been replying, saying, I watched it six times and cried each time. So that's slightly different. That's lovely. My uh, choice bit of immediately applicable advice is find people whose history is your future and reach out to them. And the message goes something like this. Todd. I'm hoping that you can help. In fact, we've probably got to remove the eye. So can you help me? Your history is my future. And I'm looking for help and advice from a mentor. Would you be willing to spend 20 minutes a month? I promise I'll never waste your time. Each time I come to you, I'll come to you with a specific question. The three ways I've tried to solve the problem myself and why they didn't work. And then I'll ask for your help on how to solve that problem. And anytime I fail to stick to that agreement, you can fire me. Now, when people have done this, the majority of people say yes. And you can have 10, 12 mentors who can help you and they can accelerate your career. They can help you overcome the toughest challenge. And what's really interesting is people who uh, are already successful are delighted more often than not to share their success. So that's what I would uh, recommend. I'm going to build on that, Marcus, because there's something else that I tell people when they're in transition. Reach out to people who felt you did an amazing job for them. You reach out to them and say, I'd like to buy a half an hour of your time. And only the jerks are going to say, this is how much it costs. They're going to say, what's this about? You could say, I'd like to buy a half an hour of your time because I'm trying to figure out what specifically my value is. Other than working hard, if I'm not mistaken, I think when we work together, you caused me to feel that I did something that was better than very good, that it was even in your mind, excellent. So I'd like to spend some time with you and drill down what that might be. And then what happens is when you do that and you recall the time when you were excellent for them and they relive it, they re-experience their gratitude and, and then you say, what industry, what companies do you think most could benefit from that? And they'll brainstorm with you. And if you do enough of these, 25% of the time, they're going to say, let me make a call. That's very powerful. To build on it, obviously, don't want to uh, overrun too much, but ask people what you gave them and what is your reputation. Now, that is a really eye-opening conversation. Because often you will have a self-perception and an attachment to how you think people perceive you. But it's an example of going for that level of vulnerability where what you're looking for is the raw, unvarnished, candid feedback. 
and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's often humbling. It's not. It's sometimes it's nice, but uh, often it wakes you up to the fact that you aren't quite as great as you thought you were. <laughs> so, Michael, how can people get hold of you? Just go to michaelbrodyweight.com. That's B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, Y, W-A-I-T as in Tom, E as in Edward, Michael Brody hyphen weight. The last name is jacked up because it's hyphenated, but it makes it easy to find me online. Excellent. Mark? MarkGoulston.com and check out uh, Mark Goulston at LinkedIn for the no strings attached. And Todd? Yeah, hard not to find, but yeah, ToddCapone.com or TransparencySale.com. And then I'm all over LinkedIn too. So if you want to follow me, uh, let me know where you heard me though. I'd, I'd love that. But quick Google search, you'll probably find me pretty easily too. Excellent. Mark Goulston, Michael Brady White, Todd Capone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You were great. You were great. Thank you, guys. Thank this you. is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, and if you haven't, frankly, you were asleep, then please email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please connect us either via email or direct message. And in the meantime, stay safe, be authentic, be transparent, and surrender the outcome. Bye-bye.